You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. My name is Becca Lassell, and my PhD is in Occupation and Rehabilitation Science, and my work has focused on people living with dementia and their care partners with an adaptive riding program and also adaptive gardening. So I'm a huge horse lover. Um, I actually, so I I remember vividly the first moment I got on a horse. Um, I was about, I think I was seven years old, and um, my dad, so my dad's a doctor, and one of his nurses had horses, and she used to have a barn and teach lessons and and all that. And since then, she had retired, but still had her own horses. And so she um, introduced me to her horse named Chuck. He was this uh, paint horse, registered paint horse, such a sweetheart. And uh, I remember like learning how to put the saddle on and the bridle. And the moment I got up on Chuck, my face just like lit up, they said. And my joke is that I like never stopped smiling since because I just enjoyed that moment and that experience so much. And because I think, too, one of the reasons why I was interested in studying writing in the moment is because like horses have been a passion for me and they have been life giving for me. And, um, you know, if when I get older and I'm not as physically able to go out and choose what I get to do all the time, I would want someone to offer me that same opportunity to engage with horses. So, um, having that background definitely kind of spurned my interest in that number one, because I think it's, it's really important to be able to do what you love, like regardless of what age you are. But when we look at it from, you know, like a social justice and human rights issue, you should have access to be able to do the things that you love in your community, regardless of your age or, you know, what kind of health conditions or health challenges or diseases you may have. Adaptive riding. That's the topic of the show today. I'm talking to Dr. LaSalle about her dissertation research that examined how people with Alzheimer's and dementia responded to a therapeutic horseback riding program called Riding in the Moment, which is offered in Loveland, Colorado. We also talk about gardening and how nature-based interventions like these seem to improve the well-being of people of all ages, but especially older adults. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Okay, well, Becca, uh, first off, just wanted to thank you for coming on our podcast and for telling us a bit about what you study. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I think a place to get started is what is occupational therapy? Yeah, absolutely. So occupational therapy um, is a profession that focuses on helping people do the things that they want and need to do uh, in life and in their community. So that may look like something like helping someone learn how to use the bathroom again after having a stroke or being able to bathe themselves or for kids um, in pediatrics where we're helping them develop skills that they might be a little, you know, behind on. Um, So that could be skills 
related to fine motor skills, handwriting, being able to, you know, draw a circle or uh, tie your shoes with self-care or focus and self-regulate to be able to learn in school or in your community or participate at home. So it's pretty broad. Um, But I think, too, another focus of occupational therapy is this realization that what we do really plays into our identity, our mental health, our physical health and well-being. Um, And it has the power to really transform us, not only into who we are today, but who we want to become. Um, and, And so I think that's really powerful. And it's it's something that drew me to the profession and keeps me excited and wanting more. Right. And something you told me in our last conversation was that writing in the moment is not actually an occupational therapy program, but you approached it from the occupational therapy lens. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, and and this kind of confronts a a bigger issue that we've struggled with, with equine-assisted services, and that is uh, terminology. Uh, Because there are so many different types of equine-assisted services and ways to incorporate horses um, to help people in different ways. And so um, I want to be clear, like for occupational therapists to do occupational therapy and incorporate horses, it would still be called occupational therapy. And there's terms out there like equine assisted therapy. And and that term, a recent paper came out actually by my mentor, um, kind of talking about how that term can be problematic uh, in that it doesn't really distinguish the service that's being provided. So then, um, you know, because it lumps like physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, all together. And then sometimes there's confusion too about uh, other services like adaptive writing, which is delivered by a therapeutic writing instructor. And all of these services can be really beneficial, but it's important to use the correct terminology to avoid confusion for consumers, uh, for uh, professionals, and also for reimbursement possibly of those services. So Um, When I would incorporate horses into my occupational therapy sessions, I was I was providing the service of occupational therapy, but I would use techniques when we would ride the horse that relate to hippotherapy or that we're drawing from that and hippotherapy is using the movement of the horse um, to benefit uh, to benefit well being or build skills or um, that sort of thing. So I think there's been a lot of confusion with terminology and and to provide the distinction with adaptive writing that's provided by a therapeutic writing instructor. So they don't have to be, they're not providing a therapy service. Um, They go through training, they can have a certification um, through PATH International to provide the services, um, but it's it's more providing access to horsemanship activity and adapting it so people with different health challenges and disabilities can still have the benefit of those activities. Mm-hmm. It's it's just fascinating to me to think of like a human animal bond as being therapeutic. I don't think that's a very cutting edge topic because, you know, every even kids like you can tell from a very young age that 
animals have some kind of special hold over them and they make us feel better, but it's just really cool to see that being kind of capitalized on from a therapeutic sense. Yeah. So I think relationships, um, can be therapeutic and I want to be careful here because I think like, I think we can't create, you know, these relationships. I think they kind of happen. It's an added benefit. Um, So I think like thinking about these interventions therapeutically, like we can create the situations for these experiences to happen or for these relationships to happen. Um, And I think there is a lot of benefit to them. um, Just like having motivation to come and see a horse or interact with them or, um, you know, feeling needed in some way or feeling like you're contributing to something outside of yourself. I think that can be very beneficial. Um, and I'm curious, like, I'm so curious about studying that cause I think it's so fascinating, but I want to be careful too, cause realizing that, um, when we create these types of interventions, that might not be everybody's experience. Um, but we can create situations, say, like matching a person with a horse uh, for the entirety of an intervention or a program um, where they might form a relationship um, and that might be beneficial to both of them. But I think that phenomenon is is so fascinating because um, I, I think, too, it's hard to know it, you know, some people have likened the horse human or human animal bond of it's like a friendship, intense friendship, or almost this feeling of like falling in love where you're like, ah, you know, and there's this animal that you just really connect with. And so as a researcher, I think I have to be careful because not everybody is going to have that experience. And certainly that's an added benefit if they do. Um, and I'm so curious and I want to know more, you know, about about that and the outcomes that might come along with it. But I have to be careful because looking at it from a research perspective, knowing that's maybe not going to be everybody's experience. And for some people that might just really enhance their experience. And for other people, maybe they just enjoy the social aspect of, of these types of interventions because they're, they often occur in a group context. Um, So being able to interact with volunteers who, you know, may help them ride, or in my last study, we incorporated care partners. Um, and I think that social piece, whether it's with the animal or the human, is is really fascinating. And I think that might be one of the reasons why people have a positive experience or may have a positive experience um, attending the program. Mm-hmm. So speaking of positive experiences, I wonder if we could take a bit of a turn and you tell us specifically what writing in the moment is as a program, and then what did you study about writing in the moment? Absolutely. So I first became interested in writing in the moment. Oh gosh, I think it was the first year. Yeah, it was the first year of my PhD studies at CSU, uh, I had the opportunity to help out in my colleague's dissertation study of writing in the moment. And my job as part of helping out was to help her do these behavioral observations. So what we would do is we would go um, and we would watch the participants who had dementia as they engaged in regular activities at their long-term care facility. 
Um, but also we would watch them at this adaptive writing program called Writing in the Moment. And we tracked behaviors related to uh, their facial expressions, whether they were showing interest or pleasure or looking afraid or anxious or um, if they were agitated or not. And then also we were collecting information on what they actually did. So um, if they were participating in activities at their long-term care facility or if they were just you know sitting and not really visually engaged and doing not doing much. So we were looking at how they spent their time and their, what we could tell from their emotional experiences by looking at their facial expressions. And we tracked their behaviors at the long-term care facility. And then we also did it at the adaptive writing program called Writing in the Moment. And Writing in the Moment is this uh, program that Hearts and Horses actually developed here in um, Colorado. And it involves these opportunities to pet horses and brush horses or groom um, horses, and also for those who are cleared by their physician to ride. And so what was really fascinating to me, um, particularly I was observing this one lady um, at the long-term care facility, and sometimes she would engage in the activities there and she would smile, but there are also these moments where she would sit by herself and you know, kind of mutter these incoherent sentences and wasn't really engaging with other residents um, and kind of keeping to herself. And when I watched her at writing in the moment, she completely transformed. She was talking to people. Um, she even spoke in full sentences. She asked to take one of the ponies home with her, which was so awesome. The pony was adorable. His name was Cream. Um, and she just really seemed to transform. And that just made me so curious about like, what is it about this environment at writing in the moment that just completely changed her in that moment? And so that experience just kind of spurred all these questions, you know, for me about like, what was it about this program that really changed, um, changed her experience in that moment? And so that, that experience led me to do my dissertation study of writing in the moment. And so my research really was looking at, um, mapping what the intervention was or what writing in the moment is and how it was thought to work. And I did that uh, in collaboration with um, some colleagues looking at developing a logic model, which is a map, a visual depiction of what the program is. So with that, um, we looked at the purpose of the program, which was to support quality of life of people living with dementia Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, and then looking at all the resources needed to do the program, and then how those resources linked to the activities in the program, which I mentioned were the petting, grooming, writing, and then that unstructured um, time that would occur. And then our research in that first paper was looking at mapping these observed behaviors onto every activity to see you know, what, how were people responding? What did they do uh, during each activity? And it was really fascinating because we found each one of those opportunities or activities that occurred um, within writing in the moment were associated with these variances in what we would call positive or neutral 
indicators of quality of life. And that's fancy for emotional well-being or looking at their facial expressions and time use, what they were actually doing, how they how they were spending their time. And so it was really interesting because we found these variances. So for instance, like petting the horse was associated with the highest uh, durations of time that people were observed to be smiling or showing signs of pleasure. Um, and then riding was associated with the higher durations of interest, um, which was really interesting. And all throughout, people had an engaged gaze. They were looking at what was going on. <laughs> they weren't sleeping or anything. And we didn't see any signs of agitation, which was important. And we didn't see any signs of fear, anger, or anxiety. And so having that logic model was really helpful because then the second part of my work was looking at um, the program with people living with dementia in the community and having the logic model help me be able to make sure we were replicating it um, the same way. And with that second study, we added a couple few, a few things. We paired participants with the same horse, and then we also invited their care partners to participate, which was really neat. Um, and, and with that study, we also compared that to um, adaptive gardening, so another nature-based intervention. And part of that was because of my experience with the logic model in that um, as part of that, we asked uh, direct service providers who provided the intervention, why do you think you know, you're seeing these outcomes or what do you think um, may contribute to this? And one of the things that they pointed to was this chance to connect with horses in nature. So in that second study, I was really trying to explore that a little more. Um, and what was really fascinating is that I found that both of these interventions supported emotional well-being. So these positive emotional experiences where people were showing interest in what they were doing or expressing pleasure, you know, smiling, laughing, um, if they were communicating, both of them showed that people communicated during it and participated um, and were engaged. But what was fascinating is I found the, the main difference between the two is that uh, these opportunities to engage with horses appeared to provide these chances for more complex participation. And what I mean by that is that participants were doing two things at once versus one thing at once um, as they were in adaptive gardening. And not to say one is necessarily better than the other, but it suggests on this foundational level that participants were using their, you know, their cognitive capacities in a more complex way. So for example, it might look like well, I had one participant groom and pet the horse at the same time. And that was, that was her choice. <laughs> she initiated doing that, which was really interesting. And then there were opportunities during riding for participants to ride and play a game. So they were not only riding, but they were having to think ahead, you know, and navigate through cones, you know, help steer their horse through cones or walk over ground poles or um, play a beanbag toss game. And uh, I, we didn't observe participants doing two things at once um, in adaptive gardening, which was just really interesting <laughs> in itself. So that was the main finding from the, the second study that I was really excited about. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's cool because to my knowledge, that was the first 
published um, nature comparison study for this population, which was really neat. That is really neat. I'm, I can only imagine that, that this working with horses, petting horses, grooming horses is incredibly beneficial for patients with Alzheimer's or dementia. Like how you were saying, they're doing two different things at once and, and there's, you know, a cognitive capacity needed to be able to do those two things at once and to think ahead for a game. So that's exactly what you're hoping for, for a patient that has, you know, some sort of cognitive decline. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, another thing that was really cool about it uh, in both the interventions was the social piece um, is with writing in the moment you had each participant and their care partner were assigned a volunteer um, to be with them throughout the entire program and the same for adaptive gardening. And it was really neat to see the social interactions and, you know, the relationships that kind of formed and continued throughout the program or both interventions was really neat to kind of see. Mm -hmm. Do you have any data of the participants when they were not doing the program? Like when they were back at the care facility, just hanging out, like what kind of benefits they might've found? Yeah, so so with this most recent study, it was people uh, living with dementia in the community, and I did not have um, like baseline testing with them, just doing regular activities with them. In the first study, uh, we did compare, um, you know, their their experiences participating and emotional well being at the care facility, and then at writing in the moment, um, and there were, you know there were different activities where they did engage and it seemed, you know, they were having these positive experiences there. But what was fascinating about that first study is that Beth found there were higher uh, frequencies of pleasure at um, writing in the moment and higher communication, um, significantly higher, I believe. So that was really, really neat to see the differences between the two. So in the second study, we didn't do any baseline testing I did on the side or alongside it, I guess it's included in my dissertation, is looking at, I piloted some short-term outcome measures um, with that, but we had a really small sample size, so it wasn't large enough to have any, you know, definitive findings um, either way, but I I did get some good pilot data on short-term outcome measures as far as which ones might be promising. Um, to continue to explore in the future. I'm glad you mentioned care partners because one thing I also wanted to ask is, do you have any findings specifically about how writing in the moment affected the care partners who, who took part? Yeah, that's a really good question. And so I did collect data. Um, I did, um, I did a quality of life measure and then I also did interviews with the care partners to learn about their experience and see, you know, if they were satisfied with writing in the moment and what their experience was and what outcomes maybe that if they saw any, what were they, you know, in their loved one and and if they saw any benefit for themselves. And it was really interesting because a lot of the care partners linked their emotional well-being to their loved ones. And um you know, so saying things like, well, if my loved one finds joy, then I'll find joy, you know, in the moment. And, and so that was really fascinating to me. And uh, overall, 
it did, they did seem to enjoy, um, the intervention and it did seem to, um, you know, enhance their well-being on some level with that. So I'm excited. That's actually the next paper I'm working on. So stay tuned, folks. (laughs) That'll be forthcoming. I'm curious what you would think, like what your takeaway is of nature-based interventions just in general, having compared, you know, this adaptive writing program to this adaptive gardening program in this population of people with Alzheimer's and dementia. Yeah, so it's actually really fascinating. So in other countries around the world, um, nature-based interventions, and and they call them nature-based prescriptions or even social prescribing, is currently being done for this population. And if if you look in countries like the UK, um, they have a lot of nature-based interventions. So they do uh, gardening, programs and they have green spaces is another popular um, intervention where those can range from just like going to a park or a green space or there's like woodlands where people can walk or lots of just really creative like different different ways of incorporating nature and I think um, there definitely are benefits to that Uh, and I think as the research continues to build and develop, we're seeing that there's benefits related to emotional well-being, um, perhaps even physical activity, um, opportunities to engage and socialize with others. So there's definitely evidence continuing to be built um, showing promise for these. Um, I think we need to see larger scale studies, you know, with, with bigger populations. And I think some work's already been done on that with the gardening front um, and and some of these other nature-based interventions. But I think what's so fascinating is I think it's really neat that we're expanding how we're thinking about health and well-being um, to looking at, you know, how can we how can we think creatively and how can we provide people with experiences um, that can support their health and well-being in these different ways? Um, because, you know, positive emotional experiences and participation in meaningful activities are, um, you know, key, key points and key places um, that best practices in dementia care say we should be, you know, supporting and looking into. So it's really neat to look and see examples of these different nature-based interventions for these populations. And I guess what I'm really interested in in looking at is like, how might they help people in similar ways or different ways? And based on what somebody is interested in, you know, then how as a healthcare provider or how might, you know, the larger healthcare provider community look at these and, and maybe make recommendations based on the evidence as it comes forward for how it might support quality of life and well-being in these different ways. Mm-hmm. It it sounds unconventional as as an intervention, but I think it sounds unconventional just because of where we're located. Like in the American healthcare system, you don't typically think of a nature-based intervention when you have some sort of condition. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think it's important to acknowledge <laughs> we have very different healthcare systems. Um, And so it's definitely, I think a lot of work has to be done to investigate this and see if it works, you know, and if it does work, then those conversations can be had about how might 
we be able to, you know, incorporate these into practice. Um, but I think my, my work contributes, you know, it's a small sample, but it's like one drop in the bucket <laughs> as far as like of, of what direction we need to go and how much more research we really need to do um, to see if these work. Um, and then maybe based on that, as more research comes forward, then we could think about possibly integrating them into care. I think one other thing I want to point out, because um, there is a lot more research on gardening um, and health and well-being. And I think one thing it's important for people to know um, in the context of my findings is that just because somebody is doing something you know, something more complex doesn't necessarily mean it equals more quality of life or more well-being or more function. Um, and I do want to point out that uh, there is gardening research that sh that shows that being in a garden and just relaxing, not really physically doing anything, has benefits for well-being. And then also the physical activity of gardening um, does have health benefits related to function and um, that sort of thing. So I think it's important for people to know that too, you know, that they're both beneficial. Um, and there is currently more evidence uh, for gardening and this uh, research with writing in the moment is really just beginning to build the evidence base for adaptive writing for this population. Prior to me and my colleagues' work, there was only one paper published for this population um, of an intervention that incorporated horses. So this is really, you know, just beginning to emerge. So we don't know, you know, long-term what, what benefits does this have? And I'm really curious to see, because if, you know, at, at the level of the intervention in the moment, if we're seeing people using their capacities in that way, you know, automatically I'm curious about, well, how does that affect things <laughs> later on? So that's to be determined, but I think it's important for people to know that too. So whether you're a gardener or an animal lover or a horse lover, <laughs> there's benefits to engaging in things you love in nature. Yeah, I think that's great. So I'm I'm speaking to one of the pioneers of this line of research is what Ooh. you're telling me. Oh, no, I don't know. I wouldn't call myself that. Yeah, I just, yeah, that's very kind of you. I don't know. Maybe I will be someday. But um, yeah, I'm excited to just have had an opportunity to do this work and to have met such incredible people along the way. So I'm very, very fortunate. So what would you say is your personal takeaway from your dissertation? What was most impactful for you? Yeah, I think for me, I think just the importance of being able to do things that bring you joy in your community is so important, so important, like regardless of what age you are, but specifically for this population, um, because as dementia progresses, you, be, you do become more vulnerable and reliant upon others to give you opportunities to do the things that you love. And so I think a key takeaway for me is that it's really important to continue to do those things that bring you joy, that enliven you, um, that you're passionate about um, when, as you age, and even if you have dementia, you know, let's think of creative ways for you to still do those things while being safe. And I think that's the big takeaway is that it's important to still do the things that 
make you you and that you love like throughout the lifespan and, and regardless of whether you have um, dementia or Alzheimer's or another form of cognitive decline, it's important to still do that. Mm-hmm. So now that you've wrapped up your PhD, what are your next steps? What are you interested in, in researching now? Well, I'd like to continue this line of research in one form or another, and I'm currently looking at postdocs, so we'll see what the future holds, but um, I've definitely learned so much from my dissertation work, and I, I love working with people living with dementia and their care partners, and I'm excited to see what the future will hold. <laughs> I'd like to thank the Carl and Caroline Swanson Foundation for funding my dissertation research, and also the Office of the Vice President of Research for providing funding um, for the second study. So incredibly grateful to them and um, the Enriched Aging team who helped me uh, conceptualize the second study and my mentor, Dr. Wendy Wood, and all my research team members at the Temple Grinnan Equine Center. It takes a village. (laughs) It takes a village. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. That's exciting. So uh, now is the time when I ask you the question that I ask everyone who comes on this show, which is what is your best advice for healthy aging from your perspective and what you research? Yeah. So I think with my background as an occupational therapist, I think my advice is, is this, you know, try to still do the things that you love in a safe way and, and remembering the importance of doing things that bring you joy, that interest you, that fascinate you, that make you curious, um, and try to continue to do that as you age in a safe way. Um, and I, I think that that was one of my biggest takeaways from writing in the moment is that this program is providing a safe way for people to still experience the joy of horses or for some even to experience it for the first time. And I think, I think that's the big takeaway for me that it is important to still be able to do things in your community that you love. And along the way, you may experience benefits like positive emotional experiences, or you may use the capacities you have um, and be able to tap into them and, and hopefully keep you feeling healthy and, um, you know, keep you moving and keep you doing things. So that was my, my big takeaway. I think that's really great advice. All right. Well, I think that's everything I had. So I just want to thank you again for this conversation and agreeing to be on this podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.